Hello, it's 2021. Vaccines are here, travel is back in a big way, and so are we. Welcome to season three of The Trip That Changed Me, a podcast about transformative travel experiences brought to you by Full Time Travel and hosted by me, Esme Benjamin. In a few weeks, I will be leaving New York City and heading out on a very quintessential USA road trip with my husband and our dog. The plan is to blend work with national park adventures, cowboy towns, and weird roadside attractions. And at the moment, there is no set return date, which I kind of love. I'm really excited to be recording season three from some cool locations around the country, but still be bringing you the same amazing guests and inspiring travel stories. Stories that we hope will inspire your next life-affirming trip. Avid traveler and distance runner Liz Warner was on honeymoon in Namibia when she came up with the idea for Run to Reach, a global journey that would involve running 30 marathons in 30 different countries before her 30th birthday, all in support of women-focused NGOs around the world. Run to Reach went on to raise over $50,000 and would take her from the dense jungles of Sierra Leone to the central highlands of Afghanistan. Liz would wear out six pairs of running sneakers, burn 156,000 calories, spend the night in 64 different places, and encounter infinite acts of kindness along the way. In this episode, we discuss running and traveling as a way to process grief. Liz ran her first marathon in Tokyo shortly after her father passed away her deep love for Afghanistan, and her victorious pivot after the pandemic cancelled her final two races. Welcome to The Trip That Changed Me. I am super honoured and excited to be on. I love travel and I love health and fitness and wellness and all of those things, so I feel like this is a conversation I'm going to really enjoy. I'm excited to speak with you. And just looking at your previous guests, I mean, it's just, it's, you know, it's really an honor to be included on this list. Ah, you're so sweet. I'd love to talk a bit about your background, because I know you grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, but you moved around a ton in your 20s. So if you had to think back to where your desire to travel comes from, are you able to pinpoint where that began? You know, I was really fortunate to start traveling when I was really young. I think my first international flight was when I was six months old. And that really comes from my father. Actually, it's a funny story. He, it was his dream for all his life to become a doctor. And he unfortunately never got accepted to in um, a medical school in the US. And so he literally not one single acceptance letter. And so he ended up going to med school in France, um, not having, I mean, he didn't speak French at all. He just sort of threw himself in the situation and came out a completely different person and it changed his life forever. So I think my father instilled this just complete love of, of travel and also just that, you know, this idea that travel will always be the best form of education you can receive in your life. So whatever chance you get, just again, throw yourself in in some amazing situations around the world. And yeah, you'll ultimately come out a a different person. Do you have um, family in France? How is he able to study there? He didn't know anyone, like literally knew no one. And I mean, he happened to be, I 
yeah, he was definitely very intelligent. So he picked up French quite quickly. Um, he made friends, you know, pretty fast as well. And I think they really helped him out. Um, but yeah, he just sort of figured it out. And this was in the 70s. So, you know, I think, again, my my father grew up in a really small town um, in upstate New York. So I think this was just a completely transformative experience for him. And yeah, and I think I've always just had this mentality growing up, especially with traveling, that traveling is all about surrendering to the unknown. And it's also about human connection and sort of allowing others to help you out along the way. So I think that throughout my whole life, I've sort of always understood traveling is just surrendering to the unknown and not having any expectations and just throwing yourself into some crazy adventures. Oh, well, it sounds like he had such a huge impact on you. And this is jumping forward a little in the story, but you live in Paris now. So that's an interesting connection there as well. I'm sure that maybe your decision to move there was probably in some way informed by his experiences in France. But I know that your dad sadly passed away, which I'm so sorry for your loss. That's it's really tough. And and you were in your early 20s at the time, which is just such a hard difficult age. I mean, there's never a good age to lose a parent, but at that time when you're trying to figure out who you are in the world and what you want to do, that must've been so, so hard. You know, I, it's exactly what you said. I think I was definitely coming into my adulthood and I was really, really close to my dad and I lost him all sort of time. I decided to move to Japan when I was 22. So a lot of things were happening at once. And, you know, I ultimately decided to process my grief by moving to a different country and again throwing myself in a kind of a, another crazy situation by living in this foreign foreign country no it was it was very difficult but it's you know I think um it's sort of also how you approach life and as difficult as this whole um you know my father's death was it it propelled me in a direction that you know it made me appreciate life more it made me understand truly or live you know, by the mantra that life is is really, really short and you have to, to follow your dreams as cheesy as that sounds. And so I also, um, you know, after that event, really pushed myself to live my limits, I guess. And when you were in Japan, you started to run, right? You decided to train for the Tokyo Marathon. Now, I'm curious to know because I I feel like people are either born to be good runners or they're not. Like I have a really short Achilles tendon. I have tight calves. I probably am not mentally robust enough to do long distance running as well, if I'm honest. So did you consider yourself to be a runner prior to that trip to Japan or was that something that happened just in that moment? You know, it's funny. I I had run a marathon in college, but still, even after running that first race, I yeah, I didn't consider myself a runner in quotation marks. I think signing up for that marathon, again, I was in a period where I felt really lost. You know, I was working a lot in Japan. You tend to work really long hours there. And so when I signed up for that marathon, it, you know, the few hours of training, sometimes I would train from like midnight to 2 a.m. Oh my goodness. You know, yeah, it was a crazy period. I was 22. I was young. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and more resilient Yeah, exactly. I had the energy back then. But it really just became meditative for me. And yes, I had this big marathon distance to train for and to look forward to. But, you know, those few hours, random moments during the night almost, yeah, they just 
became really meditative and therapeutic. And it really actually allowed me to process so much, um, especially right after my father's death. So crossing that finish line of that first marathon was one of the proudest moments of my life. And it just gave me this surge of confidence. And, and then, you know, as soon as I did that first marathon in Tokyo, I, I realized that there are marathons across the world and that you could really combine traveling with marathon running. And yeah, that's ultimately, I guess, how, yeah, this huge life project um, came to be eventually. Yeah. Well, but we get onto that. I'm curious to know, like, I think there's something in this idea that people who've suffered a loss, whether that be, you know, they've, somebody close to them has passed away or they've had some sort of brush with illness themselves. You know, this idea that sometimes we turn to physical feats as a way to reinstill, I guess, trust in our own bodies and our own resilience and our own abilities at a time when we feel a lot of doubt about them. Do you feel like that was true for you? Yes. You know, I felt like I was actually at a place where I could have gone either way. Like I really could have dealt with my father's death or this really heavy period of my life. For example, I was in Tokyo. I was was 22. I was sort of at the peak of my youth. And, you know, I could have very well just taken the route where I could have gone out a lot and just sort of grieved in this way that, again, I was compartmentalizing a lot of what I was feeling, but, but yeah, with running, it just, it forced me to ask internal questions I didn't know needed asking. And it really um, became this, this just moment for myself to, you know, to check in with, with how I was doing, how, how I could make this really, really difficult point in my life, almost not necessarily productive, but, you know, really eventually shift my life in a very positive way. I don't honestly think I would have started running as much as I do now if if my father hadn't passed away. I can honestly say that, that it just really forced me to sort of find this new direction and at a time when I felt so completely lost. So, um, so yeah, absolutely. I totally relate to what you're saying as well. Not that I'm a marathon runner, but even in the fact that you moved to Tokyo, following his death like I experienced a lot of loss in the past year like several people I love died and there was a point where I was just like you know I just need to change the narrative like I I need to do something different so my husband and I and our dog are like going on a long distance road trip but putting us up in storage and we're going to travel around and like see the states and yeah I just think sometimes you need to I don't know, turn a page, not that you ever turn a page with grief because it's, it comes in waves and you never really like move past it. You just live alongside it, but that something needs to change in order for you to like re refine yourself and recenter yourself, you know? So you found running for many people, running a marathon is kind of a bucket list thing that, you know, they tick that box and like, okay, done that onto the next goal. <laughs> not so for you. <laughs> so tell me what went through your mind when you finished that first marathon and you started thinking about all these places that you might go to run. I mean, again, like I mentioned before, I couldn't believe I crossed that finish line that I really, and also I'd only really been training for that first marathon for like 
a few months. So it just felt all really fast. And I kind of at that moment, it's like when you're running the marathon, you never think you want to run another marathon. You know, it's like <laughs> only when you cross the finish line, you're like, that was amazing. Like you couldn't believe you did that. And so I remember running that first race and I was like, this is great. I'm going to finish but my marathon career ends here. And so after that race, I, I took a bit of break, not from running, but just like, you know, I didn't sign up for another race for a few months. And then it was at this kind of tricky point when I was living in Japan, where my visa was running up. I had a year long visa when I first moved there um, with my job and I switched jobs. So it was kind of tricky to figure out a way uh, to extend my visa. And um, I had just met my now husband. Uh, and so there are all these like incentives for me to try to stay. And so I told myself, if I can figure out this really tricky puzzle of trying to stay in Japan and figure out a way to extend my visa, I'm gonna sign up for my second marathon in Seoul, Korea. I'd always wanted to travel there. So again, I just, my first few marathons were kind of spread out like once a year, um, two marathons a year. And so after that second marathon in Seoul, and I spent maybe four days beforehand, just by myself there getting lost, um, eating the best food and meeting really incredible people. I was like, wow, this is such a cool way to travel, to really explore plays. I, I personally really love solo traveling. And so um, it just was a great way again. And you do often meet so many people at the races. So that's also a great addition. So yeah, so I just became hooked. And then um, my third race, I believe, was in Myanmar. And so then you start discovering that there are races in, in kind of more far-reaching, obscure countries. And, and that's when it just got really exciting. Yeah. So the people that you met at the races, did you meet anyone who was similar to you who had a focus on traveling and running and, you know, running these races in different places? Absolutely. You know, especially I think at that race in Bagan in Myanmar, I met a lot of like-minded people like me. I, I didn't know that this niche community existed, but once I tapped into it, it was like, Whoa. Amazing. And you start, and then you just start. It's almost like treating like war stories or positive <laughs> way, but like you start hearing about races in like Siberia and Antarctica, and then you're just like, it's so wild to even just imagine some of the races that exist now. And because just because it's also a, like a booming industry now, marathon running, and just you know people really traveling to some of the wildest places for races. So um, yeah, it was really the beginning of this whole new world that opened up before me. And I know that at some point you moved to Paris. What instigated that, that choice? I had been living in Japan for almost five years and I was ready for something new. Japan, I mean, it definitely, those five years living in Japan were the the most formative years of my life absolutely it's a very peculiar place to to spend a prolonged period of time and I mean I love it Japan will always be a second home to me but yeah the work culture is really really hard and even if you're a foreigner at, after a certain point um, you kind of have to really abide by certain standards and rules and and I just felt you know I was I think I was around 26 27 and I just felt ready to for a new adventure. I, I sort of gotten used to Japan. I was like, okay, where do I want to live next in the world? Maybe somewhere where I speak the language and, but I, I wasn't necessarily ready to move back to the U.S. So yeah, so of course I had this connection to, to France. I grew up speaking and learning French um, since I was really young and 
you know, I think when you compare Japan and France, I think I was really craving to live in a place that was extremely expressive. Like, you know, I think when you tell people, oh yeah, I live in France or in Paris, I'm like, oh, French people are so rude. I'm like, give me all the rudeness. I've sort of been living in such like a polite culture for, for so long that I just yeah. wanted to really be in a place that felt alive. And, and I, yeah, you know, it, it did the fact that my, my father did spend a number of years uh, living in Paris. It felt really meaningful to, to move here at the same point that he did. And yeah, so then I, I applied uh, to a master's program here in Paris and got accepted and just decided to say yes. And I was kind of lucky. I had a few friends in Tokyo who um, set me up with people here. And so it was actually quite easy to make friends and mm, uh, expat community. So easy. And, you know, I was just joining a yeah. program. So yeah, it was a very smooth transition. I was about to say, as someone who's had a lot of visa struggles over the eight years that I've been in the States, I was like, how did you move to, how much you moved to France? Because yeah, people would like to, like to know that, but I guess you get the visa via your master's program. Correct. Right. I was very lucky because um, I was working after my master's program and my job, my company at the time, they were like, we will sponsor you. It's okay. But my husband moved over from Japan. I actually moved to Paris a year and a half before he finally was able to come here. Where is he from? Sorry. He's from Lebanon, actually. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. Very random. Um, met in a bar in Tokyo and, and here we yeah. are. Um, and so he managed to find a really great job in Paris. And so as soon as my student visa was ending, I switched onto his visa, actually, which I started my own company on his visa. So there were really uh, some great uh, perks to also getting married around that time, too. So it worked out well. Nice. And then so you got married and you went on your honeymoon to Namibia, which I also want to talk about that because I feel like it's been on everyone's bucket list in the last couple of years. I would love to go. And that's where you came up with the idea for Run to Reach. Yeah. How did it come to you? What was that light bulb moment? You know, it's funny because I really felt like at that point during my honeymoon in Namibia, everything in my life was in its right place. I finally had my husband come move to Paris. Um, I had a stable job. I had just finished my master's program a year before that. I loved my friend group in Paris, like everything was perfect, but I still felt like this tingling feeling within me that I needed to do something crazy with my life. And I also really wanted, you know, I'd been working um, in marketing kind of since graduating university for a number of different like luxury groups. And um, I was working for a hotel for a while and I really wanted to in some way combine my passions of, you know, marathon running and traveling and, and seeing if I could do something or impact the world uh, beyond my personal bubble in some positive way. And so, yeah, so at the idea, literally, I remember exactly where we were when the idea popped in my head, you know, what if I ran 30 marathons in 30 countries before my 30th birthday, this would be an incredible goal. Um, Yes, it would require me to quit everything in my life right now. <laughs> I, I felt like, you know, the opportunity might ne never present itself again. And I also felt like at the time, I was like, okay, I'm married now. I have a husband who 
is supportive and he kind of has to say yes to anything. <laughs> like he's right like, now, you locked it down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so, you know, I, I kind of, I came up with the idea. I let the idea really marinate in my, in my head for a few days. I remember actually writing my sister a like novel length email just explaining the idea because at that point too, I was like, okay, in each of the countries I'd be running a marathon, I wanted to partner with a women-focused organization and sort of promote what they do and fundraise for that cause. So that's when the idea really started to take, to take shape. And uh, so I wrote this long email to my sister and was like, I really think I'm going to do it. I really think I'm going to come back from this trip, quit my job and like figure it out. And that's exactly what I did. Like, I, I think when I think back to that moment now, it's like, gosh, almost three years um, on yeah, I'm really impressed by the courage I had um, just because it really, I, I didn't realize what the project would require. You know, again, it was, an, it was going to be an 18 month long expedition almost uh, traveling in the world, but I had no idea how I was going to budget the trip. You know, I thought to myself, I was like, okay, it's a great idea. I'm just going to easily get sponsors. Like, absolutely not. You know, it's, it was really, um, a much bigger project uh, than I could have ever, ever imagined it to have become. But, but ultimately, obviously, I'm really happy I said yes to the idea. And I'm really grateful also for that moment in Namibia. I think it was like the first moment too after I just got married. It was kind of like this moment of pause and quiet in my head where I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. And um, life is too short to just go back to Paris and settle into normal life. So, so yeah. I'm picturing you in that beautiful Namibian desert, <laughs> just having a moment. <laughs> exactly. And my poor husband too, he was like, I just moved to Paris and now you want to leave me again for 18 months? Like this is, I mean, we're married now, but like I didn't sign up for this, but no, he was incredibly supportive. And I think he was really excited for me because as soon as I did return back from that trip or return back to Paris, I literally spent 20 hours of the day I hardly got any sleep so I was just in full planning mode and so excited and um, I had never done anything like that before in my life it's like throwing myself into something um, yeah completely so it's a running theme on the trip that changed me this this sense of reaching these milestones in life that everybody is supposed to reach but still feeling like uh, I just feel like there's something more for me and it seems like, you know, that's kind of how you were feeling. Like I'm not done exploring the world and my own potential yet. How old were you at this point? I was 28 and a half. Ugh. I knew you were 28. I was going to say, were you 28? So yeah. I don't want to sound too woo-woo at this point. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. like in astrology, there's this thing called Saturn return. And I remember my yoga teacher telling me about it when I first, because I moved to New York at 28 and like shook my whole life up and didn't know what I was doing and I was like I'm gonna do my yoga teacher training and it was my 28th birthday and the teacher was like oh happy birthday honey and she was like oh 28 sat in return and I was like what does this mean but I think it's basically the same thing as a quarter-life crisis it's like this idea that you're reaching 30 and you're you know you're a quarter of the way through your life hopefully yes. if you live long enough um, and you know that you're reassessing or you're kind of reflecting on what you've done so far and you're thinking about what you might want to do and whether you're truly happy in the place that you are and I think for a lot of people in their 20s if they have if they have like walked this road of having the really good career and settling down and and feeling like they're, they're on this one track but it doesn't feel like quite right and they think there's something else out there for them 
then sometimes they have to like kind of rip it up and do something quote unquote crazy. <laughs> and it's incredible that you, you know, you managed to do that with the support of, of your husband still and, and all of that kind of stuff. Cause yeah, it's, it's a really, um, it can be an unsettling thing as much as it's, it's so, so exciting, but I do think it's interesting that, you know, it was, your goal was 30 marathons in 30 countries before turning 30. What was the significance of the number 30 to you at that point? You know, it's so funny. I'm not even a big birthday person. Like, I think, you know, life to me is not necessarily defined by an age, it's defined by experiences and, you know, just different periods of your life that push you to grow faster than others. Mm -hmm. And so basically, when I decided to say yes to this marathon uh, project, Run to Reach, I had actually already run 10 marathons in 10 different countries. So this project was the final 20. And so I kind of mapped it out, like, could I run 20 marathons in a year and a half? Um, I think I, I think I could. It, it, again, in retrospect, it was crazy because I'd never run more than two marathons in one year. And here I was running um, close to like 15 in one year wow. um, with this project. So, um, but yeah, you know, I think I also, you know, I come from a communications background and I knew so much of this project, you know, I would to me, yes, the running component was really important, the marathon running component, but the fundraising aspect was way more important to me than, than the running itself. And so I knew it, there needs to be some fun hook, you know, like, why is this project so special? I didn't want it to name it like Project 195 or something. Like, I wanted it to be like kind of a nice hook and mm -hmm. everything just sort of came together, you know, with this big birthday. I feel like so many of us can also relate to this big moment in our life where we leave our 20s behind our youth and it's like okay we're becoming an adult we're like we're, gonna, <laughs> we're becoming old you know you're not you're not old in your 20s you're old in 30s and so you know I was like okay I'm just gonna make this birthday something big with this massive goal ahead of me and and so yeah but you know I think when I started telling people about the project and also you know reaching out to some of the organizations I think everyone would just thought it was this you know it was a really nice story and the way mm -hmm. that it was obviously a big momentous point in my life that I was trying to wrap this goal around. And I know that initially you picked marathons according to places that you would like to visit. And then you were like, you know what? No, I'm going to completely change tact. What happened there? So it was about six months into Run to Reach that I had this revelation. And yeah, you know, I did selfishly choose places. Like I think <laughs> I wanted to, you know, I really wanted to travel to Cuba and the Seychelles and I still want to travel to these places but again you know this project for me was so much more than just traveling even to some of these countries it was choosing to work with organizations that I really connected to and at the same time I decided I wanted to travel to places that probably a lot of the world really don't know too much about and I didn't know that much about, you know, so I think that made the project infinitely more interesting. You know, I wasn't just, you know, going to, yes, I've run the earlier marathons um, that I, like the first 10 marathons. Yeah, there are a few European marathons, like more mainstream places travel to, but for the final 20, I was like, okay, I'm going to go to Afghanistan. I'm going to go to Sierra Leone and, and Yemen and these countries. You know, I think at that point too, I had traveled enough where I felt pretty fearless and I felt um, 
you know, a lot of these countries that have bad reps as being dangerous and, you know, they're weighed down by negative headlines in the media. That's never the full story ever. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so often you travel to these places and you meet the kindest people in the world. So yeah, so I, I managed to find marathons in these countries, which is crazy in itself, but there is like a niche in the niche in the niche that people, yeah, that really want to just have just such a transformative experience in a country that no one travels to and happen, you know, and you manage to run a marathon there. It's, it's quite cool. And so, um, so yeah, I actually gave myself a whole month off during that period to, to refine um, all new races and also connect with new organizations. Um, I'm still connected to the organizations I was supposed to work with previously. Um, and I'm still doing some work with them, but, but yeah, it was, it was kind of um, uh, a little bit messy trying to reorganize everything, but ultimately um, it worked out. And how did you train for that? Because, you know, running is completely different depending on what weather conditions you're encountering and you're going through different climates and you're also, you know, you're running a marathon in a new place every couple of weeks for months on end. <laughs> so how did you train for it? So I think the three months before I started the project, I really, yeah, I, you know, I quit my job and my life became training for these races and planning this huge journey, um, 18 month long journey. So I, I increased my mileage, um, you know, incrementally. I never worked with a coach, which like, again, in retrospect, that was really stupid. And I don't know how I managed to not get injured, but I do have to say, I'm not a fast runner, but I'm definitely an endurance athlete, meaning I can go for very long periods of time. Um, and that's sort of my strength in running. You know, I think it's really easy for me also um, to sort of achieve this flow state when I run. And so after a certain point, like mile six, I just even forget that I'm running. Mm, that's that's and the dream. <laughs> it is the dream. And it honestly, and that's why when I meet people and they've never run a marathon before and they're like, I like running, but I could never run a marathon. And I always tell them like, it's, it's not even a physical feat. It's truly mental. And if you can get to a place where you enjoy running enough, or you can, you know, zone out enough where you even forget that you're running at all. Like that to me is when you are really in shape for these kind of um, crazy marathons. And I think, yeah, like I, I ran several marathons during this journey that they were, I was running in 95 degree heat Fahrenheit and just really, really tough terrains as well. And I think, again, I don't even think I was that physically fit. I mean, I was to a certain extent, but just I think mentally I, I really planned it so that um, I could handle those conditions in the months before. Do you think the fact that you're raising money for these NGOs was something that could help power you through those tough moments? Absolutely. A hundred percent. And um, it's funny, one of the most difficult races I, I ran was in Afghanistan, um, just because it was a really mountainous race. Like I'm talking like 4,000 meter. I can't even like think and feed <laughs> um, elevation gain. I ran alongside the organization I was fundraising for, for that particular race was um, an organization called Free to Run. And they provide safe spaces for Afghan women to participate in sport. And so what was so powerful about that race was that I ran alongside 50 female Afghan runners and, you know, just seeing them run beside me. And obviously this race meant 
so much more to them than just running, you know, 26 miles of 42 kilometers and crossing that finish line. It meant, you know, asserting their independence and, and really like just becoming this strong, fierce, powerful woman that society, you know, projects to a certain um, extent in Afghanistan. So yeah, in so many instances. And I think I also try to always plan for the marathon to be at the end of my trip in that country, just because I, I wanted to feel all of those experiences. And I wanted to also use the race to reflect on all the people I had met during you know that week or two weeks I was in that country, the human connections, um, the incredible work I got to witness at some of the organizations when I visited the projects. And so, yeah, it was really 100% that, that essentially really gave me the, the fuel to always power forward. Were there any other moments that stand out as particularly moving or you know, significant in some way? You know, I always keep coming back to the experience of going to Afghanistan uh, just because it was a trip that, I mean, again, my husband was like, do it, go for it, go there. But my, yeah, the rest of my family, they were not super excited about me mm. traveling there. And I spent close to two and a half weeks um, between a few places. But yeah, it was just, you know, witnessing just utmost kindness from strangers and I remember specifically during the race you know we were in these weaving through these tiny villages in the most beautiful national park there it's called Vandermeer National Park and it has these beautiful turquoise lakes and it's like these towering canyons like really breathtaking and we were running the race and I remember like there's this woman like a a woman from one of the villages who kind of grabbed my arm and she was like, come inside, like, come have some tea. And it's like, I'm sorry, I'm like running a race. And like, you know, I kind of was alone in the middle. But yeah, you know, I think it's just, it's the hospitality, you know, really experiencing the the hospitality again in places where you have um, so many preconceived notions of of it being dangerous or um, kind of associating any one country with violence or yeah, I think it was just really in those moments that, you know, even me as an American going to Afghanistan, as much as I, I wanted, you know, believe that I can look past all of, you know, these negative headlines. And, you know, I do, I definitely, as soon as I landed in Kabul, I was like, whoa, I'm in Afghanistan. And then you're just like, you're, yeah, all of the thoughts in your mind of like, the images you saw growing up and the stories that you heard of like war and terror, blah, blah, blah. And, um, but then, you know, immediately we went straight from the airport to this amazing restaurant in this beautiful garden. And I'm not saying Kabul is all like rainbows and, but like, it was just really this like place of serenity and, and peace. And it was really conflicted with everything that was, you know, I sort of grew up to believe about this place. And so I think it was really just these moments of, reconciling the fact that you know absolutely just need to travel to some of these places to really experience what they're really like and mm. you know, and the incredible people that you'll obviously meet there and it's really funny too um, at the very end of my run to reach journey I have only a few marathons left as COVID hit was hitting the earth or like the entire planet and like borders were closing. Um, I was actually in Yemen at the time. I didn't have internet. Um, Again, borders were closing and we were kind of trying to make it home before um, airspaces were closing 
in uh, in Yemen and then in Egypt. And I just remember thinking to myself, if I get stuck in Yemen, like I'm okay with this. I'm okay. Like I know I'm going to meet some, you know, beautifully kind person that will probably invite me into their home and give me, you know, show me an amazing time. And I think that's, if anything, what Rent Reach really showed me and I guess what I experienced throughout the whole journey was just that you have to trust the world and know mm. that almost, you know, everyone wants to help you out and, um, and that there are actually very few bad people on this earth. It's mostly, in fact, um, very, very good people who, who just want to welcome you in their home. And um, I think that was, yeah, a beautiful takeaway as well. That really is, it's, a, it's, yeah, a beautiful message and important, I think, to remember when you're, especially if you're traveling solo, yeah, uh, when you feel maybe more vulnerable. One of the races was on that remote Yemeni island. So, do, you, do you say, how do you pronounce it? Socotra? Socotra? Exactly. Yes. Yes. Um, it's pretty small. It has, you know, quite a small population and it's not really, it's very much like off the beaten path in terms of tourism. And it just occurs to me that it's amazing how it seems that every place has a marathon, Yeah, you know? And so what do you think it is that's so culturally universal about these races? What's so interesting about so many of these races too, is that again, you, you travel to some of these countries and, and not everyone is even a runner. It's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, I think when you put on a race, it's, you know, during those four to what, however many hours, everyone is sort of just collectively working towards this goal and sort of soaking in the surroundings. And, um, you know, I think with the Socotra Marathon, it was actually the first marathon in Yemen. As you mentioned, Socotra is a bit off of mainland Yemen. It's the conflict definitely has not um, spilled over to Socotra. But yeah, you know, I think it's just, there are runners everywhere. And I think what's also really um, powerful is to see so many local people uh, participate in this race as well. It's not just these crazy foreigners that are traveling from all over the, you know, all corners of the world to to be there and, and run this race. But it was was so powerful at certain points to see so many local people kind of really take pride in the fact that these races were taking place in their countries too. One race in particular that comes to mind that was, yeah, just really points to that fact that locals just really take pride in and the races being there it was in um, Somaliland. And this, again, is a country that people, so many people in the world don't even know that Somaliland exists. They just assume it's Somalia. And, um, and yes, Somaliland has its own issues, um, but it's a very safe country. And I think the marathon there has it's been now there for four or five years. And just the pride, like seeing the local people just be so proud that that foreigners were coming there and that they themselves could participate in a race with people from all over the world was just um yeah really really incredible oh that's so wonderful and you you plan to complete your goal by your 30th birthday which was June of 2020 the pandemic had other plans (laughs) that must have been so disappointing how did you cope when you realized that you weren't going to be able to do it the way you planned of course so I had successfully ran 28 marathons. Um, the last marathon I ran in a crazy destination was on Socotra Island in Yemen. So I had two marathons left. Um, I was actually supposed to run my 29th marathon in Greece and then my 30th marathon on um, Everspace Camp, which would have been wow. Really but um, I remember, yeah, I did not have internet on Socotra Island and 
I remember the first second I got a bar of internet, I received a message from my sister just saying like, Liz, I know you have no idea what's going on around the world, but like probably your rent-to-reach project will have to be paused or will have to be postponed in some way. And it's going to be okay. We'll figure out like some solution. And for me, I was like, you know, this is like a global pandemic. You can't in this moment feel sorry for yourself. I think also the biggest lesson that I learned from this journey is just, you always have to make lemonade out of lemons. And so I got back from, I managed to arrive back to Paris before the borders closed. And I sort of was just sitting on my couch, you know, France, there was a really strict lockdown in France where like you literally couldn't even leave your apartment. It was like only for an hour a day. So I was like on my couch. It was like the first moment also of just like calm and pause that I experienced again, in like probably a few months. I didn't really know what I was going to do. I, I knew that I didn't want to postpone the project. I, as much as, okay, yes, there was a big goal of wanting to finish it before my 30th birthday. I also, I was... I was exhausted at that mm. point. You know, the glitter and excitement of traveling started to wear off. I remember so many times, like so many points during the traveling that I would wake up and I didn't even know where I was because I was just constantly shifting places. And, and that's like a beautiful state to be in, to like constantly be traveling like that. But I really, I was at a point um, where I thought I was about to burn out. And so, um, so yeah, I sort of gave it a few weeks for me to sort of think about how I could uh, wrap up the last two races. And um, and I received a few messages from people actually on Instagram. They're like, you should organize a virtual race and just have runners from all around the wor- world join you. Um, and I think at that point I had amassed like enough people who were following my journey and who were really interested in my project and, you know, highlighting um, all the different NGOs that I was working with. So yeah, so I just sort of put it out there um, that I was, you know, planning to run my 29th marathon in Paris, but it was going to be a virtual event. And I actually made it a goal to try to get runners from 110 countries to be a part of it. And I thought to me, just made the race just so interesting. And so then I just gave myself a month to organize everything. I was DMing runners in Bhutan and Djibouti and um, Honduras. And, and I think, you know, again, it's, it's so funny, like going back to that whole comment of making lemonade out of lemons, like my virtual race in the end was probably as much as the whole traveling component of Run to Reach was life-changing and amazing and so enriching, but the virtual, the 29th marathon, the virtual race was just such a profoundly rewarding experience because it really just felt like the world was coming together for my project and I somehow managed to get um, over 500 runners signed up amazing month-long period but yeah but runners again from these very obscure countries and and I remember you know I put together a video I had all the runners send in short clips of them running wherever they are and it was just really wild to see people in like Iran and and um and Uruguay and it's just um again coming together for this project that I somehow managed to put together over the past year um so yes that was really that was really cool how does the virtual marathon work was everybody just doing it in their own cities or were they filming themselves like how did it work I had everyone um, register and I really wanted to make the race as inclusive as possible. 
And when I say inclusive, like some people weren't even allowed to go outside to run because of all oh, the right. movement restrictions. So I had this one woman in Mexico and she's like, I'm just going to um, like run on my treadmill or even do whatever kind of exercise inside. And they were like, is that okay? Is that going to count towards your And I was like, yes, it's going to count. Like, this is such an honor that you're, you know, you're even thinking of me to, and taking part in this, in this project and race. So yeah, so everyone sort of, you know, they registered online and they kind of put what distance or what kind of um, types of movement that they were going to be um, doing for this for this race. And so by no means was I asking people to run a full length marathon distance. I actually, I had close to 80 people run a full length marathon distance. That's impressive. Pretty impressive. Yeah. So, um, but, but yeah, they were, they did the race. Um, wherever they were in the world. I sent them all first, uh, like little bids that they could print out and wear. And I was really surprised to just yeah, see so many people proudly wearing this bib. And, you know, I think it's, it's funny too, you know, we've obviously been living in this crazy, you know, pandemic world for the past year. And I think so much of what we've done obviously has gone virtual, but I, think especially my virtual race was at the beginning point of mm-hmm. everything really turning virtual and so I think um, everyone was super excited about it it felt really fresh and new and I think now if I launched the same um, initiative or kind of virtual race maybe I wouldn't have gotten as many people just because the enthusiasm wouldn't have been there any longer <laughs> right but the timing was right this time exactly yeah but, um, but it was really, really cool. Yeah. And then the last race, the 30th marathon, of course, the Everest marathon was canceled. <laughs> and it was also around the time my 30th birthday was on June 8th. And I literally had very little, I, I knew I wanted to do the race outside of France, but I had very few options um, as to where I could travel. So essentially, I think my only options were Italy, and the flight, I remember looking at the flight and it was really expensive. It was going to be pouring rain that weekend that I was supposed to finish my 30th race. And I was, so I was telling myself, I was like, oh my God, it's going to be so anticlimactic. And um, a friend of mine messaged me and they were like, you should run the 30th marathon in Andorra, which I had never heard of this tiny country kind of wedged between France and Spain. And so I actually contacted the tourism board in Andorra and I said you know I'm doing this project it's my 30th marathon uh and they were really excited about it they got, like, whole, like you know press uh, <laughs> team there and they were like and so that made it really exciting and it, so, yeah, it definitely felt slightly random but um but it was a, a really fun way to end the project that's perfect that is the perfect way to end it another thing that you started working on recently is a podcast tell us about that of course so you know I really gave myself six months to process the whole journey and you know I think run to reach it really was 18 months of spending every second out of my comfort zone you know I'm a pretty private person I'm um this project really required me to almost be like a public figure and to document everything and to show everything mm-hmm. that I'm doing and so I really asked myself after finishing the project like what did I really love like what did I what can I continue now um after Rentreach maybe I'm I can't really travel at the moment obviously because of the pandemic but what aspect of the project can I um continue that really gave me so much meaning and so I think it was absolutely and I think I always had trouble 
communicating about these moments during Renteries just because, yeah, you, you meet certain people along this journey and you have these really life-changing conversations that are mind-expanding and, and heart-expanding. And how are you supposed to put, you know, package those moments, I think, on social media, et cetera. And I think, yeah, it was really these powerful conversations I was having with women in all of these countries that I didn't really get to, to speak much about. You know, I spoke about them in general, like, yes, I got to meet so many really, truly incredible people, but I wanted to bring some of these conversations to life. And so um, my podcast is called From Her View, and um, it's essentially, I'm interviewing women from complex countries like Afghanistan, um, Cuba, you know, countries that not necessarily have a bad rep, but that are really, you know, when you say those, the names of these countries to many Westerners or most people, they have a certain perception of them based on, you know, the leadership or the political gender issues. So I really wanted to highlight some incredible female stories, you know, women who said yes to a really groundbreaking idea in their life, whether that was starting a company or going on, you know, their own like traveling adventure. And so, yeah, this podcast is one part really diving into their story and second part kind of really understanding what it's like to actually grow up in these countries that so many of us don't really understand or um, have, you know, the wrong impression of. It's a great idea for a podcast. Really good. <laughs> Sorry, I went, I went quite in detail into that, but I, yeah, I feel very passionate about the idea, and um, and you know, I've always been a podcast junkie as well. Um, since podcasts, you know, mm. were even a thing, um, <laughs> and it's always been a dream of mine to start a podcast. But it's it's hard. It's actually, um, it's it's um, it's one thing to have a private conversation um, with someone, but but yeah, when it's recorded, I I give you a lot of credit as my um also um, conducting so many amazing interviews <laughs> definitely feel that you yeah it gets better over time I hope <laughs> well so do I I mean I feel like I'm every season I'm getting a little bit better a little bit more comfortable but it's a work in progress for sure <laughs> I'm no Dak Shepherd just yet <laughs> so looking back on this trip to Namibia yeah how would you say that it changed you Namibia is such an incredible country that I think it's becoming more common to to travel there guess just the very the raw landscapes and I think everything about it I mean you most of the hotels we were staying in were quite secluded and so again it just kind of these really raw barren landscapes gave me this kind of like mental clarity um and mental space that allowed me to to really you know have this moment during this incredible travel experience and to ask myself, you know, what do I really want out of life? It was really this existential moment that, that, you know, really pushed me to ask that question. And I don't know if I, if I would have been in the same mental state um, had I been anywhere else. I think, yeah, it's just, you know, being sort of these land, uh, desert landscapes and um, kind of just being, a small point in the middle of nowhere just really, yeah, again, allowed me to come up with this crazy idea that that also forced me to think that, you know, life was too short, that I really just, I needed to to push myself to do, to pursue this this crazy journey. So, yeah. 
Well, Liz, thank you so, so much for sharing your story. You are a total badass in my books. I mean, I don't know how you've done so much. It's really impressive. Um, And congratulations on finishing. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Before you go, I'd love to do a couple of quick fire questions. Of course. Okay. What is one thing that you believe every person should experience in their lifetime? Yeah, going to gear this towards more of like the travel, travel answer, but especially with social media, I think it's so easy to, you know, to see a place and feel like you've experienced it just by looking through someone's photos or videos. I would say go to a place that you really feel like you know nothing about and and experience it for yourself. I feel like there are so many countries that unfortunately are experiencing so many negative outcomes from mass tourism and the world is so big and full of so many cultures that um, have still yet to really be discovered. So I say, you know, do your research and really go somewhere that's outside of your comfort zone and that you know very little about. If you could teleport anywhere for just one day, where would you go and what would you do? I would teleport myself to Beirut, Lebanon. Beirut holds a really special place in my heart. Um, It's where my husband's whole family is from. And I just really feel like the food is some of the best food Mm, in the world. So good. Um, It's so good. And there's one restaurant in particular that it would be the first place I would go after teleporting myself there. It's called Taule. And it's all these different village women from around Lebanon that come to the restaurant and cook their specialty for the day. And it's just a really cool concept. And yeah. I just, Beirut, it's such a crazy city in so many ways and is obviously going through a really tough time, but yeah, but it's a really beautiful culture and and a very warm city as well. What's the one thing that you never travel without? My running shoes? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know, I mean, that's like, maybe <laughs> I need to come up. I also think, I know this is really terrible to say out loud, but um, I experienced uh, food poisoning several times over the course of uh the rent to reach journey and so I I no matter what uh, I, no fun. <laughs> yeah no it's really not especially when it's like during a race and you have like six hours to go <laughs> like just jumping behind bushes um but uh but yeah I always now travel with antibiotics um just in case uh anything could happen I could be anywhere and I'm set and I can eat any food because I think for me I never no matter how many um you know cases of food poisoning I experienced uh in my life I'm never gonna not try a type of food and I always want to eat everything and um street food and so for me it's just you know if that happens I'm I'm prepared I love that (laughs) bring antibiotics and you'll you can eat whatever you like exactly exactly what's a destination that's not so popular with tourists that you would recommend I mean definitely Afghanistan and I have to say too I mean I praise Afghanistan and it was a really amazing travel experience for me it's obviously not the best time to travel there now given what's going on with the U.S. troops pulling out but um but yeah I would say you know Afghanistan was was such an incredibly beautiful country and Sierra Leone um was also one of actually one of my favorite countries I visited over the course of the journey the beaches are incredible there um you would never know food is amazing there's like this 
just delicious peanut stew that I would Ooh. eat every single night is really good. So yeah, I would say um, both Afghanistan and Sierra Leone. What's the favorite place to run a marathon and why? <laughs> like if you had to go back to one of the places, which one would you do again? I mean, again, I, I'm sorry, I'm talking about Afghanistan so much during this, this interview, but I think it really checked off all the boxes for me in terms of, I do really enjoy a difficulty level with the terrain. And um, again, I'm not a super fast marathon runner. I, I enjoy the long hours. And so I think that race, just the scenery was so beautiful. It wasn't too hot. It was like really in the 60s. It was beautiful blue sky day. Um, and yeah, it was quite mountainous, but I think that's those kind of races are always the most rewarding because you kind of get to the top of this really big mountain and you, you know, you feel amazing and it like gives you the energy to move forward. But yeah, but I think that was, um, if I had to do another race again, it would definitely be that one too. And what's a film, a show, a podcast, or a book that you'd recommend for a long journey? I think one of the books that really stayed with me was Shantaram, which oh, I it's, it's so um, good. So good. I think I, yeah, I read that when I was um, I was stuck in uh, the Ulaanbaatar airport, uh, the capital of Mongolia, for 21 hours because my flight get, just kept getting canceled. And so I literally read like half of that book. And it's a beastly book. And I think I read half of it like during those 21 hours in the airport. And so, but yeah, I just totally got swept away with the story. And I didn't travel to India during the Rent Reach uh, project, but it's a place also I traveled there previously and, and really, yeah, India holds a special place in my heart as well. So I loved that book. You're actually the second guest to recommend Shantram. Really? Mm -hmm. So it's a popular one. It's good. It's hard to find really good travel kind of books. And that really is one. Finally, which place is next on your list? Where do you want to go? I'm dying to go to <laughs> places again, that, um, to Iran. And I'm oh, dying me too. To, yeah. I'm dying to go to Pakistan as well. Um, I think those places, I'm actually applying to get my Lebanese passport. And I think that will make it. Uh, easier for me to travel to Iran so that's sort of like motivation there but but yeah both of these places I just you know I think especially after traveling to just so many really obscure places during our entreach I think my tolerance for adventure and especially like raw adventure and um is quite high and um and I I really do believe that in 20-30 years like these some of these places will be a lot more I wouldn't say like mass tourism will hit Iran or Pakistan, but I feel like it, they won't, um, some of like the hidden gems will no longer be hidden. And uh, yeah, I'm just really curious to experience the cultures in both these places and, and to see, obviously, I think in Pakistan in general, just has beautiful um, mountain, you know, scapes and, and just um, areas to hike. So I would love, love to go there. Mm -hmm. Well, it's been a pleasure, Liz. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. And um, no, such a fun chat. And where can people find you on the internet? So you can head to my Instagram. I'm still, I'm actually always doing some fun recaps of places that I've run um, over the last year. That's um, Run to Reach uh, on Instagram. And, um, and my podcast, yeah, it's called From Her View and it's available wherever you stream your podcast. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you.
Be sure to follow Liz on Instagram. A reminder that her handle is at run to reach for announcements pertaining to a brand new social impact project. It's in the works and I'm sure it will be just as inspiring as her last. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope you liked it. We'll be back in two weeks time with more inspiring travel stories for your ears. In the meantime, you can learn more about us by visiting fulltimetravel.co or following us on Instagram at full underscore time underscore travel. If you have a story you want to share on the trip that changed me, drop us a line and please be sure to rate, review and follow so we can keep this adventure going.